Welcome to episode five, as we discuss resisting the dragon's beast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling, the author of the book, and I also have Pastor Peter Hagen, who is the editor of the book. Hello, Peter. How are you doing today? Great. How are you? Fantastic, because we get to continue our discussion of chapter two of the book. Uh, Last week, we talked about the dragon of the devil in Revelation chapter 12. And then Revelation chapter 13, there is the beast that's pictured as coming out of the sea. That's the one that's pictured on the book cover. And this beast serves alongside the beast uh, of the land. Uh, They work for the devil. They are pets of the dragon. And what we're going to be discussing more in depth today is that beast out of the sea, which is the persecuting government. And we're we're talking about pages 33 and 34 as we begin this discussion, if you want to follow along in the book, of standing up to the bully because the devil is a bully. So, Peter, were you a bully or were you the one being bullied in school? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I guess, I guess that's the answer. Um, um, I think overall I was I was more on the receiving end of, of bullying. Um but I tried to I tried to just be in the middle where I, you know I wouldn't be bullied by one side or the other, and um and there there was you know maybe once where I had to kind of stand up to somebody who had been antagonizing me, um you know typical middle school middle school drama, um but I think we can definitely understand kind of both sides of that and that necessity to to stand up um, to the one who is doing that. Yeah, when I. The when I wrote the first draft on this, I had initially included in the draft about standing up to the bully of Ralphie from A Christmas Story. Because if you remember from that classic movie, which is on for 24 hours on Christmas Eve to Christmas Day, that Ralphie is always being bullied by Butch. And then he he's hit one day. Uh, by a snowball, knocks off his glasses, and something snaps. You, have you seen A Christmas Story? Um, more recently than I've read The Hobbit, but okay. that isn't saying much. <laughs> All right. Well, but so this is what was pictured in my mind, and then Ralphie just snaps, and he he attacks Butch, and he's, he's pummeling him. And when I gave that uh, rough draft uh, as a presentation to the pastors – one of the pastors thought that that was calling for people to take up fists against bullies. I regretfully took that uh, that reference out of the book. I wish I would have kept it in there uh, because I'm not calling in this part that we stand up to the bully of the devil and the beast with their fists or with weapons, but we're talking not physical weapons, but with a spiritual weapon. Mm-hmm. So, so then what is that, that spiritual weapon that we have, Peter? Well, we've got the, uh, the, the sword of the spirit. Um, if you think of uh, Ephesians chapter 6, that whole section on the armor of God, that all these, um, all the armor of God that he's lists there are all defensive, you know, for protection. Um, there's only one offensive weapon, and that is the sword of the spirit. That is the, the word of God. 
Right. So let me read that, that section from the EHV that you referenced. That's <clears throat> on page 38 and 39 of the book, too. Uh, Paul writes, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to take a stand on the evil day and after you have done everything to stand. Stand then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness fastened in place, and with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace tied to your feet like sandals. At all times, hold up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Also, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, And there on the top of the next page, it says God's saints are usually on the defensive, but they don't have to be. They are given the offensive weapon of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So another reference I could have used in the book, you know, was Steve Rogers, who becomes Captain America. And as he's getting pummeled as Steve Rogers, he says, I can do this all day. Eventually, he's bolstered, uh, and then he he becomes Captain America. He has the defensive shield, which also becomes an offensive weapon for him. But I I like that phrase, I can do this all day. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Captain America is somebody who's um, very strong, and um, and he's like, yeah, there, there is a time and a place of just taking the abuse there is a time and a place of putting up with it and and tolerating it um but that would i think that would be putting too much emphasis on that entirely defensive thing because you know whether you're talking about the the armor of god here or um that statement by jesus that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church that the church is both offensive and defensive in you know basically we're just using the word of god pretty much everywhere we go um and however god chooses to use that either to um, protect and preserve those who are members of his flock or to roll back the uh, the front lines um against the devil hey you know, God be praised, but that's the bottom line. We have to use it. Right. And I think uh, what I'm getting at in these chapters here too is, and we talked about this in the last episode of whether pastors should engage in these political, cultural, moral, theological positions is that oftentimes we d- we can find ourselves as pastors and people to using the sword of the spirit as an offensive weapon inside the walls of the church. Okay. And we do that for just an hour on Sunday mornings and maybe a Bible study here and there. And then that's it. What, and I don't think scripture speaks of using God's word like that, right? We need to Mm -hmm. take God's word out into the public and then use that sword of the spirit. And there, I know we referenced an episode or two ago about what happened and it happened in Watertown, Wisconsin, as there were drag queens that were performing in front of families, in front of children, and the police were protecting them. And at the same time, they were arresting a teenager that was outside of the park with his microphone and speaker. And uh, he was reading from Galatians. 
So mm-hmm. I, I there's two things we, on that. Can we, can we yeah, not call them dra- can we not call them drag queens? Let's just call them, you know men dressed up as women. And okay. that is that is your First Amendment right to if you're trying to make a point. Um, where, but at the same time, calling them like drag queens is it just kind of gives it at least some air of legitimacy that um, that this person is engaging in a perfectly normal activity and and it, it kind of becomes this earworm that just worms its way into our head is that oh yeah you know drag queen there and no it's um it's a little strange but you know we have we have laws about that too anyway i interrupt interrupt no that's fine because now i'll interrupt my story with another one uh have you ever read animal farm i have i have multiple times okay more recently I- than the hobbit <laughs> All right. Well, I just finished it today on my bike ride. It is really hard to hold a book and then pedal at the same time, but I was able to do it. You know, I, I've been listening to a lot of books this summer uh, while I've been biking and I finished Animal Farm. And I want to talk about Animal Farm in a little bit. But here, what you are saying with drag queens, that we should really call them, I'll, I'll call them this, you know, degenerates, degenerate men in women's clothing. And, but the reason I reference Animal Farm is how, when you, when you read it, the language slowly changes and they, they, they call it one thing, but then later on, it's something else. And we see that in our culture all the time in order to normalize different things, they, they just slowly change it. And then they use in the book, you've got Napoleon, who is the pig that takes over the Jones farm. And then he has Squealer, who's kind of a spokesman. And then the sheep too, that just keep uh, repeating the phrases over and over again. You know, George Orwell, the author, he's using those animals of Squealer and the sheep. Those are, and then also different birds and so forth. That's the media. And just, Mm -hmm. you parrot things, you say things over and over again, you change the words like you said, drag queens doesn't sound so bad, but if you call it, uh, you know, degenerate men in women's clothing, that's something else. Or you call it transitional surgery instead of lapping off healthy body parts, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For for example, and and just being clear on our terminology, not that we have to you know employ all that, but at the same time to think clearly about these things so that we aren't swept along. Um, swept along by the by the terminology. Yeah, and so so they'll call it a fetus instead of a, a baby. They'll call it abortion instead of murdering of children in the womb. Mm-hmm. But it but that's all just changing things, and that fits in with this chapter too. It may sound like we're getting political here, but that's it's all brought on by the the persecuting government. It's when mm-hmm. God. God's servant of the government, and it has these commands. Now we'll get into Animal Farm too. They have God's servant of, so when the animals in Animal Farm took over, they wrote seven commandments on the wall of the barn, and most of the animals couldn't read. And so over time, they shifted the commandments by just adding things like uh, animals should never drink until the pigs found the farmer's alcohol. And then it was, Pig, animals should never drink to excess. And, and they just change things a little bit. And as, as I was biking this morning, 
listening to this and knowing we were going to be recording the podcast, I thought of that's an, a wonderful example by Orwell of our government uh, as being God's servant. And then they just change things a little bit. So like marriage between a man and a woman, they change it and pervert it. And now it's between two men, two women. It'll, it'll be perverted to other things too. Good. Yeah. That one. I mean, if you've got the time to um, read Scalia's descent on SCOTUS blog, here, here's the SCOTUS blog plug for the day. Um, it's the Obergefell decision. And what was really interesting in, in that d- debate before the Supreme Court, um, they brought up the, the, the pro-gay uh, marriage people brought up a law that forbade, that restricted marriage between African-Americans and white people um, as something illegal. And so the pro-gay marriage people said, you know, that was a civil rights issue then. Um, you know, black people and and people of lighter skin tone should be able to marry each other and not have it be illegal. And so therefore, this is a civil rights issue now. That's the entire coloration of the, you know, the entire hue of the discussion is it's under civil rights. The what they were missing, and it was disingenuous, I would say, but it's you know, lawyers speak in front of the Supreme Court. What they were missing was that that law wasn't simply to restrict marriage between two people who loved each other, but it was a, a eugenics idea of trying to preserve um, a what they thought was a superior ethnicity because they knew that you know these this husband and wife would have children and that those children wouldn't. Um, would be of, you know, two ethnic backgrounds. And so then when we get to the Obergefell decision, and I think Scalia highlights this in, in his dissent, um, is that they use the exact opposite argument, that the argument against African-American and white people marrying in the you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever it was, was saying that these people will have children. Then they twisted that to say that the argument is more of a civil rights issue because, you know, the elephant in the room is two men or two women can't have a child together. And so they're trying to use this law and totally take it out of context and say, oh, it's actually about it's actually about civil rights when it was about um, reproduction. Uh, procreation is the, the term that I'd like to use. And, and that, I guess that would be another example of of ways in which um, this government and people within secular society prompted along by the devil will employ their human reason to, um, to push back against anything good that God has created. Yeah. I think that that's all the SCOTUS blog I've got for today. <laughs> right. And because the devil and those that serve him, they can never create anything. They can only twist and change what is already good. And so you've got that example. Another one I thought of was, since I have a wife and four daughters, you know, obviously I like watching my girls play sports and Title IX, which is several decades old, you know, that was probably beneficial for women's sports. But now our own government, you know, that they could, you could say they were protecting women and at by having title nine and uh, they're acting as God's servant. But now that same government decades later is using title nine and shifting it to allow for transgender athletes. And now, yeah. and it's, it was a wording, I think it was during the Obama administration where they 
they they redefine Title IX as not your your sex, but your gender. And then in the the way that people talk, you can you know choose whatever gender you're gonna you're gonna be, just like you know, choose whatever shirt you're gonna wear for the day. Um, and that totally opened the door to obliterate Title IX to the the detriment of women's sports. Right. So. Yeah, and that's another great example then of uh, changing that language. Like I said with Animal Farm, from sex to gender. And in, you know, when you and I were in Latin and German classes in high school and so forth, we knew, you know, every, you know, Latin and German, Spanish, those are gendered languages. You've got male, uh, male and female pronouns and so forth and endings to different words. Uh, English doesn't have that. And that's why you can change things like that. Uh, that's why, you know, Latinx, it will never catch on because you have Latina and Latino, male and female. But they, but they change things. And uh, if you only had two sexes, but now you have multiple genders, but sex and gender are really exactly the same thing. But over time, you can just change it. But again, we're, we're talking about all this in context because it's coming from the government and the government that is God's servant. But in the second chapter of the book, in Revelation 13, we see that servant of the government can also switch sides, just like we do with our sinful nature. As God's baptized saints, we can switch sides and serve ourselves and serve the devil. So also the government that was created as God's servant can switch sides and serve the devil. Yeah, and I think that maybe this is a good place. Um, I mentioned earlier uh, before we started recording this part from the large catechism um, on the fourth petition of the Lord's prayer, you know, the fourth petition, give us this day, our daily bread. And I found it. So I put it here on the screen. Um, it's page 400, um, 419 or 418. If you've got the uh, Concordia edition um, and it reads like this. And I was wondering kind of your thoughts on this as we're talking about this beast out of the sea. Um, beginning in line 80. But this petition, give us this day our daily bread, is especially directed also against our chief enemy, the devil. For all his thought and desire is to deprive us of all that we have from God or to hinder it. He is not satisfied to obstruct and destroy spiritual government by leading souls astray with his lies and bringing them under his power. He also prevents and hinders the stability of all government and honorable, peaceable relations on earth. There he causes so much contention, murder, treason, and war. He also causes lightning and hail to destroy grain and cattle, to poison the air, and so on. In short, he is sorry if anyone has a morsel of bread from God and eats it in peace. If it were in his power and our prayer next to God did not prevent him, we would not keep a straw in the field, a farthing in the house, yes, not even our life for an hour. This is especially true of those who have God's word and would like to be Christians." And so I guess my question for you, there, there are a couple of other places that as we progress through the book, we'll kind of refer to the large catechism and wrestle with that a little bit more. Um, but when we're talking, my question, when we're talking about this beast out of the sea, um, in Revelation 13, we're primarily talking about how that beast is prompted by the dragon to pursue Christ's church. But to, to what degree is that beast also just sowing dissension um, or to what degree does the devil not just 
um, bring that beast along as a pet, but then use that beast to disrupt um, kind of secular life, just even for those who are not Christians? Yeah, to what degree? That's a good question. Um, well, like I'll reference it this way, because I was when I was biking this morning, I passed a young lady with two beautiful German shepherds on leashes, nothing of it. When I turned around and coming the other way, she had the dogs off the leashes and they, and they were still nice and everything, but it was a little more terrifying because those two German shepherds uh, didn't do anything, but if they would have, I would have been an easy mark. And, and I referenced that because that's, I think a good picture of the government. The devil is often pictured as I pictured it when I talk to people about the devil, he's like a dragon or a dog on a leash and God can pull them back at any time. And you imagine this and you've got the dragon with his two beasts, his two pets on leashes, and he can let them go. And then they can attack us as well. That's what uh, Luther's talking about here. But I, Paul is talking about it too. And what I read before from Ephesians six, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world rulers of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's mainly talking about the devil and his demons that have set up shop in the different governments and institutions, companies, uh, I, I'd say very much so Hollywood uh, that influences our influences culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think, um, you know, together with that, it's it's good to have a good view, you know, like whether you're talking about warfare or, or um, you know, like an opposing team, you want to have a good scouting report, you want to know where their strengths and weaknesses are, you want to know how, how far their, their power goes. And to, as we're talking about this beast out of the sea, that yes, he's looking at Christians, um, but let's zoom out and, and see the big picture that, you know, how far does his power go and what, what will he disrupt? That isn't just an attack, you know, using worldly force against Christians, but also in, in Luther's words, trying to deprive us of even a farthing or a morsel. <laughs> Right. And so, again, going back to the weapons that we have, you know, we are to use God's word. And what I was referencing before with uh, what happened in Watertown, and we went off on a nice tangent, is the team that was arrested, when, I think at that very, very night when he was released, he went and he spoke in front of the city council and he shared God's word with them. And and he was very eloquent, but he talked about that he had been in debates in in high school. And one of the things that he mentioned in there is because the media would point out that you know there were supposed Nazis that were also marching through the park with the while the degenerates in dress were dancing around before children. I have my own opinions on on those Nazis and so forth. And this gentleman did too, but he, and he referenced to the city council saying what the Nazis in world war two and leading up to it, what they proposed and what they implemented, that was deplorable, but he, he challenged them. So why is it deplorable? If you take God and Christianity and scripture out of the public square, then 
who's to say what they were believing and doing then and now is wrong. And, and so he, he gave them the reason you need God's word and his morality. And so he was preaching God's word in the public square. He was not sheathing the sword of the spirit. And then there was another pastor. Uh, I'll share this video later today on my Facebook page for resisting the dragon's beast. You can follow along. I share uh, different paragraphs and tidbits from the book every day on there. And I'll share this video that someone had shared with me that it was a pastor in Watertown that had gone and he was standing, he was videotaping himself standing in front of the police that were just standing there in the police station. And he was speaking to them. The clip is about two and a half minutes long. And he was quoting the Magdeburg Confession, which is uh, chapter uh, four or five of the book chapter four, and he was quoting to them uh, from memory about the, the doctrine of the lower magistrates, which is that just because maybe the police chief or the mayor told them that they should arrest Christians, he said, you are the lower magistrate. You don't have to follow along. The reason I bring it up is he's standing there preaching God's word to the to the police in the public square and that i think we should never be afraid to do so as pastors and people definitely and and i mean parsing out um there's a couple of overlay overlapping layers here that you know first of all um you know speaking at a park or speaking before the city council um it is completely you know right in line with your first amendment right um in addition to your christian responsibility that we have the responsibility to speak up and and you know whatever the laws may be well set that aside for a minute and look at your savior before you start worrying about all these other things um, but then, but then, secondly, that the First Amendment comes. <laughs> yeah, I, li- I like numbers in this podcast. You know, like Revelation ten comes before Revelation twelve. Uh, the First Amendment comes first, um, and so, and it preserves the the right to to speech, especially in the public uh, public square, public area, as well as for advocating what you sincerely believe in. What is your sincerely held belief? And so using that and speaking up is, is exactly what God can use. Um, that becomes a, another issue when we start talking about like the laws of the land where, you know, God's word provides the clearest understanding of morality and ethics that we could have. Um, but then when we're talking about laws in the land, then, you know, we kind of think, you know, how do I make a, a reasonable human, you know, rational discussion about the value of this law? And it's difficult to do that without the moral grounding of scripture, but it can also be done. Um, and that's kind of that, that line that we want to walk is that we are completely informed by scripture, that we completely speak up about this scripture. But then when it comes to um, trying to influence public policy, um, we want to make sure that that is grounded in scripture, but also rationally defensible from a human point of view. Because otherwise, you know, then, you know, basically how it works is somebody else could say, oh, you're trying to enforce your religion upon me when they're just talking about a moral, uh, a law that is in line with Christian morality. You're trying to influence your, your religion on me. And so that, that law needs to be removed. 
And um, and trying to parse that out, I think we'll we'll get into that a little bit later into the book as well. If we get that far, I'll have to stop talking then. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but you're exactly right. Is I think people will consider laws and the government as uh, you know just neutral, but nothing is neutral. All of our laws uh, in the beginning were all created based on a Judeo-Christian morality. And now you're right, those they're being flipped and they're taking the Christian part out of it. And so then they're just going to impose a different kind of morality so that when our public schools, you know, institutions of the government, when they took scripture out of the government, it, it wasn't like, all right, now they're neutral. No, now everything that is not good, not everything, but those things that are not good, uh, all the these sexual sins and these perversions, now those have infiltrated the public schools because God's word is not there as a curb. Uh, another thing too with this is, you know, talks on page 35, I bring this up numerous times in where I talk and in the book about uh, when Pastors and people are told, you know, we shouldn't be talking about politics. Uh, I, I always say that politics follow culture and that these issues are not political issues, that they are cultural issues. They are, and therefore, they're moral issues. And if they're moral, that's scriptural. And we should always be talking scripture. You agree with that, Peter? I completely agree. Okay. Well, yes. I, I just I just heard the statistic the other day that uh, high school boys are becoming more conservative. I don't know if you've heard that, and and the re- reason for that is that you know in in the past <clears throat> when you had institutions like schools and so forth, where you had like maybe stodgy conservatives that were in charge. Then you, as young people, because you always want to rebel and resist authority, it's just in our human nature. Well, then to resist, they would become liberal. Now, because of everything that is liberal that is pushed on to children in the schools, now for young men to become uh, resistant to those, they can't become more liberal because you really can't be more liberal than our culture is right now. Now they're becoming conservative. And I bring that up because I I think this is why we as Christian pastors should definitely engage these political, cultural, moral, theological things to our young people because they're hungering, they're thirsting for these kinds of things. Uh, I've heard people say this, and maybe you have too, but if you talk about these things, you're going to turn people off. I challenge it. I think it's the opposite. I think that if we don't talk about these things, we turn people off. And really, the reason I bring up the young people, the young men becoming conservative is uh, they're hungering for these things. If we talk about these things, we might draw them in because now they're looking for morality, but the only true morality is scriptural morality. Yeah, and that brings actually a couple other things to mind. Um, We'll probably save our discussion of the, the tax code and church's tax-exempt status for another time. Um, so I'll, I'll make a note of that. 
Um, but the, the first thing that comes to mind is a recent Barnes study um, that, that basically was looking at the decline of Christianity in America. And the conclusion that they came to was that Christianity will continue to decline until you have fathers raising their own children in a home with the mother of, the, of, those, of those children. Um, I don't know if they exactly how they phrased it. I read it about two weeks ago. Um, but the basic idea is that we need, we need young men to, to take up you know, the responsibilities of being a man um, and to provide for and care for and nurture their children. And, and socially, that was really kind of an interesting connection that they connected this social phenomena of um, you know, children growing up without a father in the home. Um, to the decline of Christianity and the return of Christianity. Um, and kind of the other one, you know, when we talk about the pastor and politics, that, that generally um, churches are, you know, the IRS sh- doesn't care or shouldn't care that churches speak out about specific topics. Um, they, the law, the way the law is written, they are more concerned if you are endorsing a particular candidate, but we'll save that for another time. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tim Keller, um, one of the more famous, you know, pastors and of, of the modern era. And, uh, he recently passed away, um, a couple, about a month ago, I think. Um, uh, but in one of his, uh, interviews back in 2020, um, he talked about four things that the Christian church has to preach about if you want to have any credibility uh, with young people today. And if you want to demonstrate that your Christianity has value, because that's the other thing. If the salt loses its saltiness, you know, how can it be made salty again? If the church is saying the exact same thing that, that the world around is, then what's the, what's the value of the church? Um, and the four things that he highlighted were, were number one, racial justice, number two, care for the poor and marginalized, number three, uh, that the church is pro-life um, at all of its stages and ages, and then fourth, uh, the Christian belief that sex is reserved for husband and wife in marriage, you know, a Christian ethic based on the sixth commandment. And you think of those and and two look like very, um, you know, somewhat politically liberal talking points and two look like politically conservative talking points. Um, but you think about it just a minute and take a step back. Well, racial justice and care for the poor and marginalized. Um, Jesus does say that the poor you will always have with you. But at the same time, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Um, and I think bundling those together, those four things, those four elements really shows that this Christian truth is truth that cuts across um, all politics and that the best politics can do is try to stake out a portion of Christian truth. And if we don't speak to, especially these four elements and you know a couple more maybe, um, then that, 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 is, that is where we need to speak up, um, especially in how scripture influences public life, as well as the lives of our Christian homes. Right. And then to apply that. So, you know, I've, I've been exhausted the last two weeks because I've been hanging out with all of our young people at church. God's blessed us with a lot at Water of Life and hanging out with our 20 high schoolers and young college students that were helping out with our soccer camp. And then every day we did 
a different activity in the afternoon or evening with them. And then on Sunday, we had our 18 and 25-year-olds come for a presentation by Pastor Dan Lindner, who is our Wells Campus Ministry Counselor. And from those discussions, uh, two things came up. One is, and I haven't talked to you about this, Peter, is uh, Pastor Linder said, well, you have a pastor, referencing me, uh, to the people of our congregation. You have a pastor that is doing podcasting. And so maybe what we can do is have uh, Pastor Klusmeyer, who's our new pastor at Water of Life, and myself, along with uh, Pastor Lightning from Shoreland once a month, that we'll add this to the Thirsty podcast, or it would take the place of that week's episode, that we would get questions from our high school and college students, and then we would just talk about them for an hour. But it's and That's then we awesome. Would, yeah, and then we would text it to our young people. You know, all of us as older people, we can get, you know, learn something from them. But it's, it's listening to them and then uh, giving them scriptural answers. And then the second thing is uh, our young people, they don't want to just belong to things like I did when I was a kid. You know, you just belong to 4-H, you belong to this thing or that thing. You have to be involved and they want to be serving in something. And I bring that up because of what you you said with Tim Keller of you know helping the poor, uh, racial injustice and so forth. One of the big things I talk about, too, is that we've given those kinds of issues over to the government again, you know, taking care of the poor, uh, the elderly, the sick. That's the job of Christians. That's why hospitals in the past have all been started by Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, because we have that in our heart. And then we've just given that over to the government. It should be our role. And so engaging our young people in cultural issues by applying scripture and then getting them to serve in those areas and not handing it over to the government. Yeah. And, and I guess that's, that's kind of the bottom line. Um, there's a number of different truisms that um, I've either come across or come up with um, most of the good ones I've come across from somebody else. Um, but one of those truisms, and I've, I've yet to see an application you know, over the last five years, six years, where it doesn't work. Uh, one of those truisms is that nothing good happens when the one with the responsibility is let off the hook. Um, or if you state it positively, good things do happen when the one with responsibility takes care of their responsibilities. And so we're talking there, um, you know, we're thinking about families raising their, their children and caring for them and leading them, to, raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, we're also talking, you know, kind of outside of that, that the Christian church does have the responsibility of loving their neighbor and of providing for the needs of the neighbor. And if we just say, well, you know, we have a government program for that and I pay my taxes, so that should cover it. Um, nothing good happens when the one with responsibility is let off the hook. And we, even, even if we have the best doctrine in the world, if we aren't practicing that doctrine with other people, um, then you just kind of wonder what is the bottom line value of this doctrine? So we'll finish up with this point of worshiping the beast. That's on page 37. 
Uh, the people are going to be tempted to worship the beast of the ungodly government. That's verse 4 of chapter 13. Uh, and then it says in verse 12 of chapter 13 that the beast out of the earth will make sure that the people of the earth worship its ally. It says there, he causes the earth and those who make their home on it to worship the first beast. So, Peter, what does it mean then to worship the beast of the government? <laughs> um, to fear, love, or trust in it more than more than God. Yeah. I guess that would be the that would be the easiest. I mean, think of the explanation of the first commandment: um, "You shall have no other gods." And to to worship something means to give or delegate to that entity what only belongs to God. And so if I'm delegating my, my fear um, to the government um, and, or my love or my, my trust, um, instead, of, instead of relying first and foremost on God and then going to what he says, uh, no matter how the secular society views it, um, that, you know, Jesus has some strong words, you know, don't fear the one who can throw you into prison and then do, or those who can kill the body and can do no more. Um, fear the one, capital O, the one God who can throw you body and soul into hell. Um, that Jesus doesn't have kind things to say for those who worship, um, even in, within the privacy of, of their own hearts, worship those before him. Right. And that's what I was re referencing before, too, of when the government is taking care of us because they're giving us and others our money back. Okay, in, in taxes, when they're the ones that are providing us with WIC, which is, you know, milk and cheese and so forth, when they're the ones that are providing uh, the care for the homeless or food shelters, those kinds of things, when, they, when we're relying on the government to take care of us, and then the government has something over us, and then they can demand fealty. They can demand us to bow the knee to them. And then we can also willingly give that over. Again, that's, I encourage everyone to read uh, Animal Farm. Uh, I'm, we're going to be working next week on 1984. That's a lot longer book. But Animal Farm really does talk about then the way, uh, I, I think this happened in our nation, that in the Animal Farm, the, the animals they were glad to follow Napoleon the pig and because he was so much better than the farmer Jones. But eventually, at the end, Napoleon is worse than farmer Jones. The, the animals are working all day, every day. They're getting a little bit of food and so forth, but they've gradually gotten used to that. And I think if the framers of the Constitution, those who resisted the British government in 1776, if they saw where our nation is now, they might be calling for another revolution. Because like Animal Farm, we've allowed things to go on and on without, without pushing back. That's in other chapters. Uh, so I, I could reference here the you know, you know, tax exempt status of churches, but that would just get you going off for a while, Peter. So we'll save that. For I've, I've got that. Yeah. I've got that saved for another time, <laughs> but a, a little teaser for next week, we're going to finish up the second chapter of this book by finishing up the end of revelation 13. So we'll discuss and apply the mark of the beast. Uh, so 
Let me read to you one more book review from Amazon. Uh, it says, great book by a faithful Lutheran pastor. Uh, overall, a great book. Reverend Zarling is a rare bird in the wells who offered early resistance during COVID and also holds a sacrament in high esteem, offering it weekly at his parish and not removing the chalice from the laity during COVID. I recommend this book. So appreciate that. Uh, so I don't know, Peter, if you've seen this on YouTube, uh, that we've gotten more people commenting on our videos on YouTube. So we encourage all of those who are watching and listening to do that. I've received a number of emails. If you give me permission to read them on the air, I will. And then one last thing too is uh, I've got a number of pastors and people that have asked for the study guide for the book. And so I've got the fifth chapter done. I finished that last night. I'm going to be camping with our church this weekend at Camp Oak Ridge out in Palmyra, Wisconsin. So I'm going to try and leave a lot of the electronics on the side uh, and then just be out there with the book and then handwriting all the notes in between taking my fat tire bike out into the Camarain Forest and hopefully not dying. <laughs> So. That sounds like a good plan. Yeah, it's always a good plan, not dying. Although I, I always remind people at church because they say, Pastor, you should, you, you got to be careful on these long bike rides. We have Pastor Klusmeyer now. We have a second pastor. Uh, they laugh. My wife doesn't laugh. She doesn't find that so humorous. So, uh, but we will end it here. And uh, thank you. And please like, subscribe, share comment on all of these videos and podcasts.